Today's reading is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as a devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. Thank you, Alexi. If you can keep your Bibles open to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and let's pray that God will speak to us today. Lord, we thank you for the church. It is a place where you have promised to live and to speak and to feed your people. And Lord, we even as we come um, to today to worship you, Lord, we uh, confess that we need you. Lord, we pray that by your spirit that you will speak to us, that the truth of your word will be heard and lived out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There was a youth worker in England that I heard about who did a great job in the church. Uh, he went there, and there was a troubled youth, a youth who was sort of failing out of school, getting into all sorts of trouble, disobedient to his parents, just bad news. Uh, but when this youth worker got there, this, this kid's life turned around. He started to go to church, and he came to faith, and, and uh, uh, started to do well in school. And, and the parents, because they were so happy, came to church to thank uh, this worker. Thank God. Praise God for you. But then a couple of, year, a couple of years later, the same parents came to the, uh, the worker again. But this time, they were really mad. 
the problem was actually that they had two sons. The younger son was actually a really bright student, no trouble at all, really bright, really great in every way, and the world was at his oyster, um, they, they thought. But then one day, he came back from youth meeting and told his mom and dad, Mom and dad, I want to grow up and be a pastor. <laughs> and the parents were really mad. They were saying, how can you do this to our child? Here is a trustworthy saying that whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages uh, called theology the queen of sciences. The brightest and the best minds of that time went into ministry, many of them. And that's my prayer for the church. Uh, for Shatin Church and churches around the world, that the churches will be filled with people, people who are Christ-like, who are lovingly serving the church, leading the church uh, in a way that deserves, uh, that, that is worthy of Jesus. Uh, when Paul and Barnabas uh, went away to their mission trips, uh, they planted these churches all around. And one of their tasks, one of their chief tasks, was to appoint elders in every church, every city, every church. The position elder was a well-known position in the Jewish communities because, well, it goes all the way back to Moses, right? As you read that story of Moses going up to Mount Sinai, he took the elders of Israel with them. And at the foot of the mountain, they ratify the covenant by eating the covenant meal as representatives of the nation of Israel. These people represented Israel, and they governed Israel. And so it was natural that churches, uh, Christians, when they went to these different churches, planted the different churches, it was natural for them to appoint elders who would oversee the affairs of the church. And although uh, here um, in, in 1 Timothy, the term is overseer rather than elder. Um, uh, overseer is actually the, the word where we get the, uh, the word, uh, it's episcopus, uh, and it's uh, where we get the word bishop. Um, but overseer and elders in the New Testament really is the same office. Uh, they're used interchangeably. It's, it, that it's elder sort of is a term of dignity, right? They're usually these people who were appointed as elders were people who are older, usually wiser, people who are respected in the community. And overseer really is the function. What they did, they oversaw, they managed the affairs of the church. We also see in this passage in verse 8 and on uh, the term deacon, and deacons, as you know from Acts 6, were in charge to, with the practical aspects of church's life and ministry, to take care of the widows and the orphans, to distribute uh, and meet the needs of the poor within the church itself. So we see these three terms, overseer, elders, and deacons. And by the second century, they have become these three uh, sort of offices, bishops, pastors and deacons. And the Anglican Church, the Catholic Church, and a few other churches also govern the church in this way still in these three offices. But other churches, 
govern their uh, churches in different ways. Their church polity is different, and that's totally fine. I don't think this is a set way of doing it, but what should be recognized in the Bible is that churches should recognize and set aside people, leaders, and servants who do, who, who do the task of leading the church uh, with Christ-likeness, uh, people who are in charge to teach God's Word, in charge with the task of taking care of the people in the church. That is a biblical injunction and what we see in the Bible happening all over the New Testament. Because these tasks are important. And let's go back to verse 1 again here. Because it's the, uh, read it here. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. What is noble? It's not the office is not saying that office eldership is the noble position. No, no, no. When somebody wants to be a pastor, he desires a noble task. He desires work that is noble, that is worth doing. It's serving as Christ-like examples in the church. That is noble. It's teaching God's word to God's people. That is a noble task. It's meeting the needs of the people in the church, serving, praying with others. That is noble. Those are noble tasks. And you see, the job of a pastor is not actually to do all those things. Actually, it's to instruct and equip the members of the church to carry out the works of ministry. This is how Paul put it to the church in Ephesus. So Christ gave himself gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for the works of service, or literally works of ministry, um, that, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Of course, as people are... Um, uh, people with greater responsibility should be held to a greater standards, the standards that's said in First Timothy 3. But the works of the pastor is to equip the church for ministry. And it's the ministry, it's the tasks that are noble, that are important, that we cannot just let uh, set aside. And I know that NIV heading for this chapter goes qualifications for elders and deacons, but don't let that uh, uh, excuse you. This is about you as well. This is about the church committee members. This is about the uh, salt leaders and links leaders and solid rock and kingdom kids um, teachers. This is for the parents who teach the Bible um, and who are examples of Christ-likeness to their children. This is for all of you who are in charge with the great task of caring for one another, speaking God's truth into people's lives, into one another's lives. This is for all of us. But let me ask as we start then, do you desire these tasks? Do you want to do them? If not, why not? What is more important? And most of us want to do a great job in the workplace. And that's a great thing. We want to be a great witness in the workplace. Most of us want to raise our children, equip our children for the future. And that, too, is a great thing, of course. But friends, here is a noble task. Serve one another. Desire to speak God's truth into your, each other's lives. 
to meet people one-to-one, to sit with people who are crying, to go and visit uh, people who need help, to meet the needs of one another. These are noble tasks that God has given to the church, the people of God, that we are in charge to carry out. And these are noble tasks, and we should desire them. We should devote ourselves to them. We should encourage our children to go and do these things. How do you encourage people to do these things? How do you encourage children to do these things? Well, I hope the first thing that you do is devoting yourself to them, to prioritize them, these ministries, to prioritize links groups, to come back from work. I know that you're tired to go and to speak God's truth into each other's life. If there's somebody who is in the hospital, to go and visit and pray with them, to sit with them. Prioritize these things, these noble tasks that God has given us. And, you know, most of the things that your children uh, learn, they're not taught. They're caught. They're, they're seen by your examples. And if you do them, they'll grow up loving the church. They'll grow up loving these tasks and wanting to follow Jesus because they have seen you doing them. Do you desire these tasks. I hope you do. And if you want to serve, well, one of you, um, one of the objections that we often get is, well, I'm not qualified. Well, let's take a look at the qualifications because it's not about your ability. It's actually about your character. Take a look in verses uh, 2 to 7. The overseer, he must be above reproach. Uh, That cannot mean sinlessness. Only Jesus was sinless. Uh, uh, faithful uh, to one wife, more literally, one woman man. I don't think this passage disqualifies single people or even women, I think, uh, the way uh, that it's written. Uh, I think the spirit of this passage is that that we, uh, the people, must be entirely devoted to their spouses, that they, in this area of, of sexuality, there must not be a hint of immorality. Uh, those who exercise spiritual discipline over the church, well, they must too then be uh, held to a greater responsi- uh, responsibility, greater standard. Temperate and self-controlled. As one person put it, if I can't govern myself, how can I govern others? How can I oversee others if I can't oversee my life? Respectable, a bad reputation. Might, be, might mean a problem that has not yet been dealt with, that might come back and bite them. Hospitable. That word is literally um, lover of strangers. Well, that task was quite important back in the first century uh, because there were no hotels as such. But it's still important now in the church because we are to welcome everyone who comes through these doors. We're to make space for these strangers in our life That's the task that God has given us, to be hospitable, to be welcoming, to love the strangers in our midst. Not given, oh, able to teach. Out of all the list here, this is the one ability-related qualification, able to teach. Of course, this ability can be honed, it can be cultivated, but there must be some evidence that people who want to lead in the church in this way are able to teach uh, because one of the main tasks of the leaders in the church is to, is to speak God's word, to teach God's word, to feed the sheep with God's word, ability to teach. Not given to drunkenness. We're not, 
uh, we're not uh, told to be teetotalers, uh, but we are to be able to control our, ourselves, not violent, not given over to quarrel, uh, but be gentle. Leaders often have to de- deal with tension, decision-making. That actually uh, often um, conflicts come out of it. And they are to be able to lead the church with gentleness, lead, go through these decisions with gentleness, bullying disqualifies a person from ministry. Not a lover of money. Later, Paul will say, love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And a pastor, a leader who loves money, will cause all sorts of evil in the church. Church leaders also must be able to manage their family. The logic is clear in verse 5. If they can't manage their own household, how can they manage the, uh, God's household? This is why it's important that the church gives time for the pastor to spend time with family. You know, a pastor who says, I'm going to sacrifice my family in order to care of God's family. Well, that person disqualifies himself or herself from ministry by saying this, by doing this. Verse 6 to 7 have to do with spiritual maturity, not a recent convert uh, that that, that might be conceded. But once again, this has to do with uh, quality, right? It has to do with humility. That person has to be humble, tried and tested. The devil will attack the leaders of the church more, and that person needs to be tried and tested. As you can see in verses 8 through 12, the qualifications of deacons is similar the main point, once again, is, has to do with character and family and being tested and all those things. All those things that are, are underscore the importance of character of the person. My father has been in ministry now for over 40, uh, 43 years now. 43 uh, years in ministry, 43 years in ministry. And this year, he will finally uh, really retire, he says. <laughs> Um, but when I was training for ministry, I don't know, at some 16, uh, 15, 16 years ago, um, uh, it was my mother who gave me the advice that stayed with me. Uh, my mother pulled me aside and said, Son, ministry is all about character. It's all about character. She wasn't speaking from the Bible, uh, uh, but she might as well have been. She was speaking from the wisdom of watching different pastors going. My dad doing his ministry. Over many, many years of ministry, she figured that this is the key to ministry, character. Character of the leaders. But this passage is, it says exactly that. The ministry is all about character. So church, may I ask, what do you value? What do you value more? from your leaders, ability or character. The world values ability, doesn't it? Uh, If you are able to do things, make something, sell something, or do things with great capacity, then you get paid a lot of money. In the church, I think this thinking comes through as well. We often are attracted to people who are able to speak really well, who are able to set some sort of a vision and drive people um, towards it. And often that comes about in, in, in the church size, but often people are attracted to that sort of leadership. But in the church, in the church, we must value character above ability. That is the emphasis of the scripture, isn't it? 
Because Christian leadership has to be about leading by example. Because by leading by example, speaking God's um, truth uh, in a way that, that they live that out, well, even if it's slow, but surely that seed, that gospel seed that's sown, spoken of, and lived out will bear fruit in people's lives. But the opposite also happens, too. Somebody who leads with great ability but does not have the Christ-like character, what happens? We've seen this again and again in different churches, um, in the news a lot, where the, the church gets really, really big, and it seems like God's doing something really exciting and powerful, but then something happens. The character gets revealed, and people get disillusioned. All of the tens of years of decades of ministry, all of that seeds that have been planted, it's gone overnight and people question the core of their faith, whether they believe in Jesus or not. So would you pray for me, for the staff, for the church leaders, your links group leaders, the people who meet with you to read the Bible, the leaders in the church, would you pray for us? For us to be able to carry out the task that God has given us with great ability, but more than that, that we would grow to be Christ-like. That we would be all these things that Paul thinks that we should be. And I hope you will also pursue Christ-likeness in your life. Will you seek to be above reproach? To be respectable, self-controlled, hospitable, gentle, generous, and humble? Will you seek these things in your life? If this is what you are seeking in your leaders, this is supposed to be the things that you are seeking in your life as well. And think about what powerful witness that would be. If you were all those things in your workplace, with your families, and with your friends, don't, wouldn't they want to hear from you? Wouldn't they come to you when they have trouble and want to hear your words of wisdom? And when you speak, wouldn't it carry that weight? Wouldn't they want to listen to you? Will you seek these characters? Will you seek to be Christ-like? And as we see in verse 13, he says, you will gain a great standing, great reputation amongst people, and great assurance of your faith, that there will be a measure of assurance of salvation in you as you become more and more Christ-like. These things are important, that we have great uh, leaders uh, who are Christ-like, that we strive to be Christ-like, that we try to uh, do these tasks. But these tasks are only important because of what the church is. In verses 14 and on, we see that now. Church, verse 15, is described as the household of God, a place where the living God lives, pillar and foundation of the truth. First, we are the house of God, house of the living God. It might be difficult for the world to see the spirit that lives in us as we are dispersed all around Hong Kong, doing our own thing, the task that God has given us uh, throughout the week. But when we come together as a church, as every aspect of church life is uh, done together as church, people who are filled with God's spirit, I'm sure we can sense God's presence in us, with us, in our singing and praying. As God's people come together to sing God's praise, to, uh, to lay out our supplications and, and petitions um, to Him, we feel God's delight, 
God's delight in hearing the prayers of God's people. We feel the delight of God being pleased with our singing, our sacrifice of praise and, and, and thanksgiving. As we come to hear God's word, to read it together, to hear God's word, we feel God's spirit speaking to us, feeding us, feeding us individually in our needs. As you remember him through communion in faith, our faith is strengthened. Our faith in, in his grace is strengthened. In our fellowship, in our sharing of peace, I hope you sense that there is a measure of this kingdom of God that's present here. That we sense God's presence here. That, 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 that the new creation isn't something that we're just waiting for at the end of the day, but it's here now as we come together as God's people. It's not uncommon for people, non-Christians, to come into church to worship with us, kind of observe as an outsider and say, actually, there is something different in the church. There is God here, living God in the church. And that's the presence that we ought to be. And, and may I ask, uh, may I address all the people who are watching online, could I ask that you come? If possible, I know some people cannot come for many different ways, uh, for, for different reasons. But if it's possible, come and worship with us. God's presence is deeply felt and most strongly felt when God's people come together to worship Him. But we, of course, don't meet just for ourselves. Uh, We don't meet just for ourselves. We meet for the others, for the world that needs to hear this gospel, which is why Paul says that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth pillar and the foundation of the truth. Last week, we saw how in Ephesus, there was this temple of Artemis, temple of Diana, which was considered one of the seven wonders in the ancient world. It was such a splendid uh, uh, structure, a hundred ionic um, columns uh, there, each 18 meters high, much higher than the ceiling here. It held up the shimmering marble roof that spoke of the splendor of Artemis. Well, in the same way, in a similar way, church is built on the firm foundation of God's truth. This is why we examine again and again what our foundation is. We go back to the revealed word of God to make sure that our lives are built on the sure and firm foundation of the Bible, God's spoken word to us. And we shape our lives around it. And not only that, that we hold up God's truth with this pillar for the world to see. And this is how John Stott put it in his commentary on Ephesians. Here, then, is the double responsibility of the church uh, vis-a-vis the truth. First, as its foundation, it is to hold it firm so that it does not collapse under the weight of false teaching. Secondly, as its pillar, it is to hold it high so that it is not hidden from the world. To hold the truth firm is the defense and confirmation of the gospel. To hold it high is the proclamation of the gospel. The church is called to do both of these ministries. We are to examine and build our lives upon God's truth. But not only that, we're to hold it high. As we live our lives upon that, build our lives upon that foundation, upon that truth, as we live our lives, as we uh, do a church uh, in this way, we are to hold up God's truth for the world to see so that the world would see the splendor of the truth 
of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here. That's why these tasks are noble. That's why it requires uh, leaders who are noble. That's why it's, it requires for, uh, for its men and women to continue to grow in Christ-likeness so that the world would see the glories of Jesus Christ. For we are the temple of God. We are the structure that is to show the glories of our Lord. But as Paul closes this section, he brings us back, not to its task, but its foundation yet again. Take a look at this hymn uh, in verses uh, 16 and 18. It talks about Jesus' incarnation. He appeared in the flesh. It talks about his death, resurrection, vindication, proclamation, ascension, glorification in heaven. What you will notice in this simple hymn is that it's all about Jesus. It's not about what we have to do. It is about the person of Jesus Christ. And look what he calls this in verse 16. The mystery from which the true godliness springs. Spring of godliness is the person of Jesus Christ. The spring of godliness is his death and resurrection, in his ascension, his giving of the Spirit, his glorification, the fact that he will come back again. It's about, all about the person of Jesus Christ. And when we come as God's people, receive Jesus in faith, our hearts will be transformed. We will desire these noble tasks. And when God's grace of Jesus is spoken to us and when we apply it into our hearts, we will want to become Christ-like person. If we're struck by his love and grace, how can we not want to be like Christ? And as God's grace of Jesus comes to us, we will want to build our lives around it and God's kingdom will be shown through us. So as we end, we'll once again just remind ourselves that we are people who are given this message of Jesus, people who are given this great task, but the spring of godliness, the spring of all of the uh, Christian life is Jesus. So let's set our eyes on him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his death and resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out his spirit, um, his promise um, to come back. And we thank you that we become new people of God, that we become your temple um, when we set our eyes on Jesus. And Lord, help us to be people who never lose sight of that, uh, uh, that, 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 that good news. And Lord, as we set our eyes on you, on your son and what he has done, and Lord, may we build our lives upon this foundation. When we, may we hold up the glories of Jesus Christ to the watching world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to now um, have a time of response. And one way of responding is through offering. And if you're a member of the church, I ask that you contribute to the works of this church. Um, you can do that online. You can do that on your way out. Uh, but we're going to respond by singing. Uh, singing of the task given to the church. But even this hymn, uh, this song that says, uh, Oh, church, arise, it'll, it'll get you to set your eyes on what Jesus has done. So let's do that now. Please stand and let's sing together, Oh, church, arise. Church.
son bled for us, for us to be your people, your church. And Lord, we pray that uh, you use the gifts, of, uh, gifts that your saints have given and use it for your glory to build up the church here and around the world. And as we give our offerings, we remind ourselves that all things come from you, O Lord. 
and of your own have we given you.